it is very good to see all of you uh, I imagine this a little bit as a reunion can people who heard me the first time I spoke to Brooklyn Zen Center in April could you raise your hand just so that I can get a sense of hello everyone uh, I'm very happy to be reconnecting I would like to start today by reading a story um, from this amazing book called The Hidden Lamp. Many of you must be aware that in my tradition, which is Rinzai Zen tradition, we work on koans, these paradoxical stories. Uh, and most of those koans, those stories, uh, from China, Japan, or even India have male protagonists. They have male teachers, male students, sparring over their understanding of Dharma, okay? But this one uh, is all with female teachers or students. This story's title is Kisa Gautami's Mustard Seed. This comes from 6th century BC, India, time of Buddha. Kisa Gautami came from a poor family, but the son of a wealthy family fell in love with her and married her. Her in-laws treated her very unkindly because of her background, but when she gave birth to a son, they finally respected her. Then, when the child was a toddler, he died. And Kisa Gautami went mad with grief. She carried the dead child from house to house, begging for some medicine to make him well. And everyone sent her away. They said, the child is dead. No medicine can ever help him. At last, a kind man directed her to the Buddha. The Buddha said, I will give you, I will give you a medicine to revive your child if you bring me a mustard seed from a house where no one has ever died. Ah. With renewed hope, Kisa Gautami went forth to get the mustard seed. But at every house, she learned that someone had died. And so, still carrying her child's body in her arms, she returned to Buddha. Did you bring me a mustard seed? asked Buddha. Kisa Gautami replied, I thought that death happened only to my little son. But now I understand it happens to everyone. Over time, she buried her child in the forest and return to Buddha to receive ordination. Some of you have heard this story before. Somehow this story is one of my favorite stories. It's from India. I feel that connection. Um, I see the patriarchy in it, right? A family respected the woman 
uh, when she gave birth to a son. It still happens in India, very much so. But the most beautiful piece, the most pertinent piece for me is what, what did Buddha do when faced with someone mad with grief? Mad with grief. Kisa Gautami is in denial. Kisa Gautami, of course, she's a grown-up woman. She must have seen death before. But when her little boy dies, she's mad with grief. Um, we have had this in our Sangha lately. Um, not the case of a child dying, but a marriage dying. And one particular practitioner is just totally unable to accept they are indeed divorced and they keep saying in this mad frenzy, I know my partner is going to come back. I know it. I just know it. We were bonded for lifetimes. So Kisa Gautami is in that kind of mad disbelief, grief. What does Buddha do? Buddha asks her to bring a mustard seed. Now, you must know something about mustard seed if you aren't Indian. Mustard seed is something that is there in every kitchen in India to this day, right? Uh, it just, across India, but especially in North India where Buddha taught, mustard seed is not something you'll find lacking in any kitchen. So Buddha, in some ways, gave her an easy way out. If you are Kisa Gautami, you're thinking, of course I can find a house where there is mustard seed. The trick is, no one should have ever died there. Now, you can fast forward and say, of course, Kisa Gautami never found any house where no one has died, and she eventually became a nun, and maybe she understood impermanence, and that deep mushin we talk about in Zen tradition, and she probably became enlightened. But that's not the part I want to focus on. The part I want to focus on is that mad grief. She went house to house. Hello, hi, do you have mustard seeds? Of course, we do. I hope no one has ever died in your family. My grandmother died just two years ago. My nephew passed away just five months ago. Right? You can imagine. Buddha was creating a community. They must have sat in their living rooms, in their verandas, in their mud floors, in my imagination talking about the grief different families have experienced. Buddha didn't tell her the time she appeared, everything is impermanent, my dear. Just, just start meditating. Right? Sometimes I say, I don't think at the time of Buddha, people cared about trauma. They were not trauma-informed. But in this story, 
Buddha is using a very skillful means. Buddha is not sending her away to meditate in a forest under a tree. Buddha is making her find community, giving her a way to share stories. And she must have sat in many, many households before she eventually came back and got ordained. Does that make sense? The reason this story is so powerful for me is as I have, if you were here last time in April when we shared space together, uh, I am a firm believer that we all need to come and share stories of our grief. And this will embolden, strengthen our sanghas, our sense of community, and it will give us the much needed fuel we need for racial healing and climate justice and the work on the climate movement. Okay, that's the case I'm here to make again in a different way today. Last time I was here, I will not repeat all the statistics, but the overall number is that 60% uh, of people in any group in America today, right, in this country, 60% of people have gone through childhood abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, seeing their mothers beaten up, or alcoholism in their immediate family. If that is you, I am not making you a statistic. I see you. That's just the baseline stress, the baseline trauma. Okay? On top of it, we also referred to this last time, is enormous racial trauma that some of us have. Right? On top of it, the class-based trauma. And on top of all of that, the most recent one, uh, so real for me as a climate scientist, the climate trauma. Yeah? I want to, I want to, this, this, this would feel hard for some of you. Uh, but I'm taking a risk here. I will share my screen and show you a photograph. Okay, and, and, and I'm asking you to keep breathing and uh, allow me to finish what I have to say today. We will end on a, we will end with a trickster mode. I will not leave you hanging with uh, just heaviness in your body. But bear with me as I say this story. I hope I have uh, ability to share my screen looks like that. Can you see the screen? Can someone raise their thumb? Okay. Anyone know what this is? Can you see bodies lying together, squished together? I 
I can share this again if needed. I'm going to stop it for a second now. Um, this is image drawing of one of the transatlantic ships between 16th and 19th century, uh, which brought slaves, African-American people, uh, as cargo, as cargo. That's, that's who, that's what we are built on. I myself hadn't seen an image like this. I've seen images of, you know, or stories of um, other kind of uh, traumas that we hold uh, as a culture. Uh, but I hadn't seen an image. This, this, this shook me. I knew about this, but I didn't know how how, you know, two million people perished just in these journeys. We talk about what happened, you know, after people reached here with their broken bodies and diseased and all of that. The journey itself. Are you all breathing? Okay, please breathe. I will not leave you with just this, but you bear with me. What do we do when we meet descendants who have had this in their subconscious and unconscious? Right? My, my own grand uh, parents and their generation, uh, they, they tell me stories that I, I wince away from what happened when uh, uh, British, uh, British people left India and what massacres unfolded. That's, that's in my system too. Uh, I, I would like to actually pause and just take comments, especially from black folks in the room, if they would like. Just, just wanting to, just, just anything, just so that you're not holding it till the end of our time together. If you feel like saying anything. I'm just taking a pause to regulate my own breath here. So I will talk about climate peace, but I hope you see I'm I question if if, if Buddha was working with this, how would we practice with this? How do we need to practice with this? 
on one hand we've uh, some of us have gone through this uh, through our ancestors and on the other hand I know Brooklyn Zen Center has done for years undoing whiteness work right and I know there is uh, right now there is an ongoing program I, and I so hope and I so pray that there is time for grieving in all of this. It's not just about saying this was right, this was wrong. Uh, I hear someone just said, Stephen, my concern is how numb and desensitizing Oh, this was a direct message. Yes, we have gotten desen some desensitized to this uh, because we are afraid to break open, afraid to cry. Uh, and that is exactly what my invitation is. Even Buddha left Kisagatami, the time to cry, go hear stories, be in community. It's not just about right and wrong and seeing our responsibility. It's, it's about grief. I'll come back to this. If, if you're following the news, this, these last two weeks have been absolutely maddening for me as a climate scientist because Glasgow, we are going through what is called Conference of Parties, this annual meeting where a lot of um, policy wonks, government leaders uh, meet to decide the fate of the planet. Most of them are men, uh, at least at the leadership levels. And there is uh, what I can say is that, yes, in terms of promises that people have made, there is progress. All countries have made more, more promises. And there is very little resources on the table for anyone to fulfill those promises. And it just absolutely breaks my heart. Uh, built on this, the, the empires built on slavery and capitalism, these systems, which I said in my last talk, Buddha didn't talk about systems. Buddha talked about individuals' enlightenment, individuals' ability to go into Mushin. Uh, but these systems, if Buddha were alive today, I I feel that conviction strongly. Buddha would want to design systems of care and healing, right? And of resistance. And it, it would all be based on, let's come together and first grieve what has happened. See, one, the, the other aspect of it which creates desensitization and numbing, uh, when grief is not expressed, uh, 
it becomes it becomes fossilized as shame and i feel like i hope this is already been explored and in that case i am just reiterating and encouraging brooklyn zen center to keep going with this but if it hasn't been explored i'm inviting the sangha to step into it shame does a lot of damage to any dialogue that can happen between people from different backgrounds races and so on totally disrupts poisons any conversation and the way to release shame of any kind is once again through storytelling and grieving does that make any sense or maybe i am preaching to the choir here the shame is so deeply embedded so deeply embedded that with all of our well meaning intentions we end up denying i'll tell you a story of um uh my friend kazuhaga is a is a uh no uh, kingian non-violence trainer out of oakland uh he he often speaks about how it has been easy for him as he's from japan as a japanese immigrant here to ask white folks to be accountable for what has happened in this country uh uh for black and indigenous people and other people of color said that comes easy yes i can ask others to be accountable he said but the trickiest part you know was what that japan itself uh, colonized a lot of asia what japan did to korea what japan did to taiwan right said that puts me on the other side of the equation and for years i've had this shame which would which i i would give excuses for that kind of not accept uh i was listening to something that uh, kazu was in a dialogue with an indigenous musician and scholar lela june some of you might have heard about and lela june was saying similar stuff she was saying as a lakota person i i of course want um uh, the mainstream power holding communities uh, with privilege to be accountable towards indigenous people she has the story of uh, andrew jackson the 7th president of united states Uh, uh who's on a 20 dollar bill and he says for indigenous people seeing andrew jackson on 20 dollar bill is like seeing hitler on a 20 dollar bill because how much harm andrew jackson caused but then she also tells the story of how lakota people um massacred brutalized uh uh or harmed pueblo people the other indigenous tribe and and the 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 point of all of this the point of all of this the place where people like kazu and lela june come back to is 
what made Japanese people do those invasions? What made Lakota people do those invasions on Pueblo people? What made people of European descent uh, do the kind of brutalization they ended up doing in Americas? And they all come to one, one point, their own trauma, their own trauma. They, they, you, many of you might be aware of this book, Grandmother's Hands, where the book talks about how much torture and open warfare happened in Europe before people from Europe started coming to Asia, Africa, and Americas. What's the common thread in all of this? Where am I going? Anything painful that happens to us, anything painful, it can be released. It can be released through sounds. It can be released through movement and tears. But if it's not released that way, it becomes trauma. Once it becomes shame and trauma, the only thing that happens is it's perpetuated and inflicted on others. What would Buddha have done in that case? He sent Kisa Gautami away from monastery, didn't say come and sit, didn't say come and meditate. Go talk about your story. Go listen to stories of others who've gone through something similar. And I feel, I strongly feel that within our meditation communities, within our sanghas and beyond our sanghas, we badly need to do that kind of slowing down, sharing of stories and sharing of grief not just meditation and silence. Because uh, a lot of bypassing can happen in silence. A lot of bypassing. People can sit still for hours, sashin after sashin, retreat after retreat, years, and still be bypassing some of their own personal family trauma, let alone the racial trauma, the intergenerational cultural trauma or climate. And you just keep sitting with that uh, in silence, not talk about it, not grieve it, not compost it. We don't get clarity and courage to take actions that are needed. I want to um, I want to now go back to that image. I will not show you that image, but uh, allow me to read you something if I can find. Hmm. So this is, uh, this is uh, something written by a Nigerian scholar, Bayo Akamolafe. Anyone heard of Bayo Akamolafe? Okay. 
this is uh, th this uh, a this is this is a story that the scene of the story is one of those transatlantic ships that I just showed you image of. Okay. One day, as my mama swears by her own father, who heard this story from his grandfather, who in turn drank milk and memory from the scarred nipples of his enslaved mother. Okay. One day the gods, they answered our prayer. Well, one of them at least. The one that they call Ishu, man of the crossroads. Mama with a knowing smile say that Ishu snuck onto the ship that day under the noses of confident accountants of black bodies. On that day, the day issue came, Mama's ancestors say, a mother bound to the wooden ribs of empire, wept her inconsolable skeleton baby son, a song of hope. I'm going to read this last line again. On that day, that one day, when Ishu came, Mama's ancestors say, One mother wept her inconsolable skeleton baby son a song of hope. She tell child everything will be alright. And then the foul will wind changed. And a man, slightly crippled, bent over, with dreadlocks reaching to waist, slowly approached the mother, a wide grin pull across his face. Those who saw this unshackled black man strolling astride the hull of our captures say he had a vulgar quality about him. Like I'm to do things, I know things, I've been places, I've seen trouble, and somehow still lived. His hand stretched out to the mother. She gave Ishu her son, her parched lips a little open. And then the most amazing thing happened. Together, slave's son and the broken god, they danced. I tell you the way Mama tell this story. It was simple, how they moved this way and that to the unspoken rhythm, to the moaning violent strains of our despair, their eyes shut and ours frozen in reverence. For the briefest of moments, we became something else, partakers in an Atlantic opera braiders of contraband music free does that story do anything to you this is lot of pain and trickery, trickery in the midst of such deep pain.
Was this a vision? Was this a dream? It doesn't matter to me. The, re the, the way I connect it to our Buddhist practice is this. In my view, what is happening to the planet with respect to climate crisis, what has been happening with respect to racial relations is all very distressing. It's weighing us down. I'm a little tied myself in a cargo ship run by someone else. And I need whiffs of freedom, whiffs of freedom from all of this. And I'm able to access that freedom when I touch Mushin, when I touch zeroness, when I can let go of the stories that have been fed to me. And then can arise some trickery, some free dance in the midst of all of this weight. So I'm saying two things here. I hope it makes sense. Two things here. Interrelated. They need to connect with each other. One is that our communities need to grieve what can be grieved. We need time for storytelling. We need time for coming together and grieving, making sounds and movements that we haven't allowed ourselves to make because we were stuck in a ship. If not uh, our ancestors, if not our race, if not our backgrounds, but metaphorically, And something that Zen tradition is very good at, Buddhism is good at, if we can surrender and sink into the zeroness and the emptiness. And I know most of you have tasted that zeroness, that's why you continue to practice. My own story of doing Zen practice is that when I came to this country to do uh, my PhD program to get my education here, I came here and I became so depressed. I did not like what was around me. I could not understand the giant wheels of consumerism churning around me. I was not able to find my place in this country. And within a few months, I started meditation with my Buddhist teachers offering free classes at Rutgers University and within a few weeks I feel like there is a deep laughter rising from within me. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. This little taste of freedom and trickery rising up. Nothing had changed. I still had to go through many retreats of remembering facing what I needed to grieve. Uh, those, those times in India, traveling alone as a woman, how, you know, molestation happens in open buses and how, you know, my ancestors faced things around the freedom struggle and all of that. But that, that, but that freedom, that 
touching emptiness surrendering machine to machine gives us gave me ability to keep going deeper into my grief so you see where where am i leaving us i'm going to stop in a few minutes what I, the case i'm trying to make is that in our personal lives or in our cultural lives or in our life as a human civilization uh we 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 have a lot of stuckness we have a lot of stories and shame buried in our collective body and individual body and it's like we we need this back and forth we need we need our seated meditation practice and our retreats that are silent and i am making a case that we also badly need more sharing of stories more grieving because we haven't heard ourselves enough we haven't heard each other enough you go to any activist group any organization that's trying to bring bring socio political change and a lot of them don't even ask each other how are you you go straight to agendas and wanting to get things done a lot of the times and then the stories remain buried even when the change we are trying to make comes from the deep pain we feel in in ourselves so be it sangha or an activist group we need sharing of stories and to be able to hold the story to be really to really be able to listen and grieve with the person telling the story without reactivity without guilt just plain deep grief we need machine we need emptiness we need that practice that makes our container bigger by bigger container i i mean um you know if there is a drop of poison in a cup of tea that's a lot that poisons the whole cup but the same drop of poison if it's held by a bigger ocean you know gets diluted it gets held the zeroness the machine uh emptiness makes our container bigger and then trickery can arise freedom can arise from that place issue can come dance with us uh i am very um grateful and excited to know there is so much of work going on in brooklyn zen center on racial healing and i know um several people of the sangha are looking into climate action some of you were in our dharma of resistance class this year um and i i can only wish uh you even deeper excavation of what torments us may our intention
Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.